We're talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. Hey, it's Hamilton Today. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Will Erskine booking the guests. In the newsroom, Dave Woodard and Jen McQueen. Here's Scott Thompson. I was fortunate enough to see uh, Tina Turner live uh, only once, but it was uh, it was like 1985, uh, the height of the whole private dancer and in that huge run she had through uh, the 80s. And uh, I'll never forget what stands out is number one, uh, great big hair, just the big honking hair company. Yeah, it was the 80s, right? <laughs> and then this little powerhouse of a of a of a woman who is like uh, in in incredible shape and just she was like watching a a Mick Jagger or pick any uh, Bruce Springsteen back in the day I mean she w- went uh, you know balls to the wall and it was like sweating and dancing and whatever she was doing I mean she was a rocker and I'll never forget because uh, you know all the hits that came out of that era um, she uh, uh, covered um, uh, Robert Palmer's Addicted to Love. And it was one of the best songs that she did. And it was just amazing. I just remember these great big heels, these great big legs and uh, and hair just, you know, literally running up and down the stage. It was just uh, nonstop. And I mean, she was middle aged by then. She was. Um, and again, you know, the, the second uh, chance in her career and the rest is history, as they say, the movie and the whole nine yards and, and the success she had with the private dancer album. So um, sad to hear that uh, we lose another one. Uh, Tina Turner passing away at age 83. We're going to talk to Alan Cross about that coming up uh, a little later on. Also, uh, while I'm away, uh, the whole thing in regard to the public inquiry uh, comes to a head. And David Johnston said, um, nope, not going to be one. Don't really see the need for one. And that was that. So, you know, as I'm trying to dissect this over the last day or so of, of what we've heard and what we've uh, tried to process. And I remember interviewing people and some saying, you know, that like a, a, a public inquiry is not going to do anything because some, so much would have it to be retracted or redacted uh, because there's just so much top secret stuff in it and all that sort of thing. And, you know, we sort of heard both sides of the story on that over the course of this. So I guess, I don't know, are you surprised there isn't one? I am in a sense uh, because it's, it's a, uh, it's a nightmare. It's a public relations nightmare for the Liberal Party. And um, I have a hard time believing, you know, at the end of the day, all we want to know is what the prime minister knew and when in regard to election interference for the last two elections. That's all we want to know. Um, and, and because we can't get that answer through whatever means, we have to go through these committees that we that are ongoing. Uh, now this thing with the special rapporteur, uh, and at the end of the day, I, do we really have to expose Canada's top secrets? You know, just to find out what the prime minister knew. You know, I mean, I don't think we need to. You know, we we don't need to to show people the inner workings of 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 CSIS. We just want to know what the prime minister knew. And what we do know is CSIS has said, along with the National uh, uh, Security Advisor to the Prime Minister, that that information was delivered to the Prime Minister's office. We do know, because she testified in committee, that Katie Telford, the Chief of Staff, said he sees everything. Uh, 
Yet he says he didn't see it until the rest of us saw it when the Globe and Mail article came out that Monday many weeks ago. So um, either, you know, it, like it's like a porch pirate. Is the package getting delivered or is somebody stealing it before the prime minister opens the door and picks it up? Because that's what it appears. It's not getting to my door. I don't, I've told them to bring it right up. Everything that's like this, make sure it gets delivered right to my door. And then somebody, so where is it? Where's the, where's the clog here? Where's the porch pirate? Where is it not getting through? Is it, because CISA's and the National Security Advisor said, yeah, it's, they're getting the information. Katie Talbert says he sees everything, yet he's not seeing it. So is it getting up to the prime minister's office and it gets lost in the prime minister's office? Because he's alluding that it's not even getting into the door. There's a porch pirate stealing all you know the information before it gets in. So where's the clog? Where is the information stopping? How is it not getting there? Um, you know, and, and those are the simple questions we want to know. We don't want to know who's, you know, who's spying on this person. That we we don't need to know dirty top secret things. We just want to know what the prime minister knew. And instead, we're jumping through hoops and going through all of this crap again. And it never ends. And Canadian wants, Canadians want answers. So I'm not sure this is going to help. I mean, maybe, okay, you know, you don't have to hold a public inquiry. But, you know, are you going to pay for this in the polls at the very end of it all? Um, just simply because of the distraction. I mean, it's just, um, you know, if he didn't know, he should have known. And at the end of the day, you're the prime minister, you're the CEO, you're the president, you're the king. It all stops at your debt. You can't blame it on your staff. Can't do that because you're the boss. The box stops here. That's what it says on that plate at the big guy's desk, right? Stops here. So where is the information? How is it not getting through? Uh, and now we have all this wasted, uh, well, I don't know. I guess the, the committee and everything continues on with David Johnston and such. Now they're talking about getting him to testify. And again, we're not getting any information out of all of these committees. So would we get any more information out of a public inquiry? Or would it tell us what we already know? And that's that the prime minister knew about it and he didn't do anything about it. And then he'll just deny it. So, but. You know, I don't know. Who do you believe? And I and now I don't know. Your guess is as good as mine. But I think at the end of the day, Canadians are still confused. And I'm not sure they're very happy about this because they still don't know anything. We learned yesterday that uh, Tina Turner passed away at uh, age 83. And uh, man, what an incredible career she had. Uh, fortunate enough to see her live. And it's interesting watching um, uh, all artists talk about today or some, several of the artists talk today about the influence that she had on them and the trail that she blazed. And um, blaze is an understatement. Uh, this woman was a rocker. I mean, she was raw and it was uh, it was like watching a Mick Jagger. It was like watching uh, a Springsteen back in the heyday. Um, she really gave it all. I mean, she was uh, constantly moving around the stage, sweating and in just phenomenal shape uh, to see this woman perform. Uh, Tina Turner, of course, passing away yesterday. Let's bring in Alan Cross, host of the ongoing History of New Music and with us now. Alan, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. I am. Uh, we're talking about another death, aren't we? I know. It's Alan's obituary. Here we go. Um, <laughs> uh, so uh, talk about my description at the beginning of all of this. She wasn't a Madonna. She was She was a rocker. This was a very raw performer live. 
Well, yeah, she she grew up uh, in in Mississippi, son of sharecroppers, got involved with the church singing gospel songs. Nick uh, Ike Turner got her to join his band, and he was the one who named anime Bullock Tina Turner. And one of the first things he did was trademark her name so that if she should ever decide to leave him, she would have to leave her stage name behind and start from scratch. That'll give you an idea of what kind of a brute Nick uh, Ike Turner was. They had uh, some records in the 1960s, and they were pretty rocking things, especially when you're dealing with a black woman in rock and roll. Uh, there was no one like her, no one at all. The closest yeah. approximation might have been Janis Joplin. But um, mm. Tina was was definitely at the top of that particular game. Uh, she releases a series of solo albums in the 1970s. 1976, she finally gets a divorce from Ike. Um, and then, or 1978, she gets the divorce from Ike. 1976, she escapes him. And uh, then she's you know left to figure out what she's going to do with her career. And uh, she had actually been dropped by Capitol Records, or they were going to drop her. But David Bowie was going out with one of the executives somewhere around 1979, 1980. And he said to the, the, the record exec said that they were going to drop Tina. And David said, no, you're not. You're going to re-sign her, which they did. And the result was the Private Dancer album in 1984, which became this monster record. Uh, for all ages, selling at least 12 million copies and turning Tina Turner, a woman in her 40s, yeah. into a TV star. Hmm. And right during the height of the video era as well. Yes. Now, that's very interesting because um, MTV was built on visuals. And in order to get a video on the channel, you needed to look good as well as sound good. In fact, Looking good was probably better than sounding good. But here was this woman who had uh, the striking presence, you know, the hair and the voice and the legs that were insured for $3.2 million and the outfits and the high heels and the high energy. And somehow in amongst Cyndi Lauper and Madonna and all the other, you know, younger acts of the day, she not only fit in, but began to really show the way. Now, remember, this isn't too long after Michael Jackson broke the color barrier on on uh, MTV. So to see a 44-year-old black woman doing her thing for what was ostensibly, ostensibly a kid's channel was, was really, really unusual. But what this also did was it brought in parents to watching MTV. Hmm. Um, the kids were watching their their videos, but then Tina Turner comes along. The kids are entranced by her. And then mom and dad wanders into the room and go, hey, I, that's Tina. I know her. And that was another big part of her success and MTV's success. And some really strong duets with some pretty prominent rockers that she could hold her own with on stage. There is never there's never been a case where she has done a duet with somebody and you did not focus on her. I mean, we can we can look at, for example, Brian Adams in the uh, It's Only Love uh, video. Who are you watching in that video? You're not watching Brian Adams, although he's very, very good. Yeah. You're watching Tina Turner. Um, and, and that's the way it was with with everyone that she performed with. If you go back to 1985, she is on stage with Mick Jagger during the Live Aid broadcast. Who are you yeah. watching? You're not watching yeah. Mick Jagger. You're watching Tina. 
Amazing that uh, at that stage, and, and I know she had some great writing and producing uh, producers behind him. That that album was it did very well, three Grammys. Uh, she was off and running, but I remember seeing her perform and doing uh, Robert Palmer's "Addicted to Love." And I thought, man, it doesn't matter what this woman sings. She just, it, it, she makes it her own. She just grinds it home. And, and it, it's like, it all sounds good. Yeah, she could do absolutely anything because she had such tremendous range with her voice and uh, just, just her presence. And, and I'm struck by the fact that there, there's no equivalent today to a Tina Turner. Everybody, you know, all the female singers yeah. that we hear today largely are uh, you know, polished auto-tuned divas. Yeah. There's nobody with, with that kind of raspy, uh, you know, balls to the wall kind of voice uh, that could compare to Tina today. Good point. Uh, yeah. You have to wonder if she's the last of that generation. Well, you do. I mean, she hasn't been with us for quite some time. She retired from touring when she was 68 and would be mm-hmm. in 2009. Um, a, she had always had some some health problems back in the the seventies. She was diagnosed with high blood pressure, and she never really took care of it. And that ultimately resulted in a couple of things. First of all, she had a stroke in 2013, and then she had some intestinal cancer in 2016. Hmm. Uh, then the blood pressure problem came back to bite her again because uh, blood uh, hypertension plays hell with the kidneys. And she was trying to look after herself with homeopathic treatments for a while, which failed miserably. And the ultimate result of that was a kidney transplant in 2017. And as far as I know, up until the end of her life, she had a dialysis machine in her house. Hmm. So she was quite sick for quite some time. Alan Cross with us, host of the ongoing history of new music, talking about the life and times of Tina Turner passing away yesterday at the age of 83. As always, Alan, thanks so much for the time. Be well. You too. We've uh, certainly been following uh, the Russian invasion of Ukraine for an awful long time now. Many said it would be over in days, and here we are continuing. Uh, Also, every so often, chatter of uh, nuclear arms and where that fits into all of this. And uh, it it seems to come up and then it disappears. However, uh, it appears that uh, in Belarus, once again, there is concern that Putin may be putting nuclear weapons to use or certainly getting them ready for the war the war on Ukraine. Let's bring in Dr. Jack Cunningham, PhD program coordinator, uh, Bill Graham Center for Contemporary International History, Trinity College and Monk School, University of Toronto. And with us now, Jack, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. I hope you're well, too. Jack, we you know we've heard every so often, especially way at the beginning of this, there was chatter of of uh, nuclear warfare and that sort of thing, and then it sort of simmers down. Where is that discussion right now? Has it progressed in any way? Well, it's important to keep in mind that this isn't something that's come out of the blue. I mean, Putin announced back in March, not long after the one year anniversary of the invasion of Ukraine proper. That, uh, that he was going to go ahead with the deployment of tactical nukes in Belarus. And, uh, and in that sense, this is not something new. It, uh, it is, I think, significant that he's making a big, uh, a big deal out of the announcement of the signing of the agreement on the heels of what, from his point of view, is a lot of fairly bad news. Uh, Bakhmut was supposed to be taken by Russian forces uh, with uh, all resistance wiped out. That doesn't appear to be the case. Uh, he's got uh, 
domestic uh, domestic insurgents to deal with. Uh, Mr. Prigozhin recently said that uh, that uh, the, the the invasion of Ukraine had turned into something of a self-inflicted wound, and even predicted the possibility of a rerun of the 1917 Russian Revolution if uh, Putin's regime doesn't get its act together. So this all has to be understood within that context. Uh, it's now the de the deployment of tactical nukes is not uh, completely without significance. This is the first time since the 1990s that Russia has actually deployed its nuclear weapons outside of its own borders, although they will remain under uh, under Russian control. Uh, if nothing else, this confirms that Lukashenko is still Putin's sock puppet. But uh, there, 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 there are potential implications if things ever did escalate to the point where Putin was tempted to resort to tactical nuclear weapons. There would be shorter warning time than uh, than would otherwise be the case. Although these nukes don't enable him to actually hit much that he couldn't already hit with weapons based in Russia. Uh, clearly, this has not gone as uh, he predicted it would. A few days in and out, a minor operation, uh, and, and here we are uh, as this continues to drag out. And obviously, he does not have the power that he perhaps um, convinced the rest of us that he did. And th they're struggling. They're struggling. So uh, if all of a sudden he was to introduce nukes into all of this, what makes it? What makes him think that, well, he's going to win that war but not win this one i mean uh, at the end of the day they're not what everyone thought they were and they they certainly haven't been able to to make this a quick job in and out they're the you know ukraine is is giving them a run for their money so why would it be any different with nukes i'm not sure it would fundamentally be all that uh, that different if uh Putin resorted to tactical nukes. Uh, NATO would uh, would respond uh, with overwhelming force and uh, quite uh, unambiguously. So I think he'd uh, he'd be foolish to uh, to actually do that. What he's 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 got two audiences in mind here, though. One of them is the domestic audience in Russia that uh, that uh, that's uh, increasingly aware that things are not going according to plan, and the other is the uh, the Western allies who are supporting Ukraine. One of the things Putin is trying to do is rattle them a bit, shake them in their steadfast support of Ukraine with the possibility of things going nuclear at some stage. That's what he's up to with uh, with this announcement. And don't you find, though, Jack, the longer that this goes, the harder it is going to be for Putin to convince anyone he's going to be successful here? I mean, with every passing day, is his chance of success not diminishing? It is diminishing, but uh, again, Ukraine is almost completely dependent for uh, for the means of waging a defensive warfare upon Western supplies. And if right. its uh, Western backers were shaken in their resolve, then we would be looking at a different ballgame. Where is China in all of this? Well, China is, uh, Mr. Xi is trying to play both ends against the middle here. On the one hand, he has uh, this uh, allegedly unbreakable strategic partnership with Russia. But on the other, he doesn't want to turn China into a pariah state like Russia. He doesn't want to be cut off from the uh, the ebbs and flows of, uh, of international trade. He's uh, quite happy that China is integrated to the extent that it is into the world economy. So I don't think we can count on him to... Uh, 
either rescue Mr. Putin from the consequences of his own folly or, uh, or broker a plausible peace. Couldn't China support Russia the way the West is supporting Ukraine? Uh, the more China supports Russia, the more unambiguously and emphatically it does so, uh, the more it risks antagonizing uh, Western opinion. And that would uh, that would go against the, uh, the very careful game that Mr. Xi has been playing up to date. Can you see the allies all of a sudden changing their stance on Ukraine, especially after the going through what everybody has been through? I would be surprised, and that's why I think this is uh, this is unlikely to work out as uh, Putin hopes. Where do you see this going? I mean, I remember, you know, it was, well, wait to the spring, wait to the winter. I mean, and, and, you know, whatever offenses were going to come after that time. What's the future here? I think the future is going to depend in large measure on the success or failure of the forthcoming Ukrainian counteroffensive. That will largely shape the terrain on which uh, subsequent stages of the conflict will play out. Dr. Jack Cunningham with his Ph.D. program coordinator at the Bill Graham Center for Contemporary International History, Trinity College and the Monk School, University of Toronto. As always, Jack, thanks so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. You too, Scott. Take care. Interesting article in the Globe and Mail. We're more aware of mental illness, but what do we do about it? Uh, Sky Fitzpatrick is the contributing uh, writer to the Globe and Mail and is joining us now to talk about all of this. We've certainly, uh, through the global pandemic, have uh, seen uh, more and more awareness and people sharing their stories and, 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 and hopefully getting help moving forward. Are we doing that? We're talking a lot about it. Are we actually... Uh, making the rubber hit the road. Let's bring in Dr. Sky Fitzpatrick, clinical, uh, clinical psychologist, assistant professor of psychology with York University and with us now. Doctor, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. Thank you so much for having me. I am. Thanks. So obviously, I think awareness is way up there, especially with, you know, various campaigns that we've seen uh, around and, and people are talking about it more. But boy, the global pandemic was an eye opener, I think, for a lot of people in a lot of situations. Um, are we are, are we translating that talk into action? Are we getting something out of this talk? It's a great question. You know, hard, kind of a hard to answer question, but it's a really good one. Probably yes and no. Like, I think that the fact that more people are talking about mental wellness, mental illness, more people are willing to seek help than they used to be. These are all very, very good things. You know, therapy is less stigmatized. Taking medications is less stigmatized. Those are ultimately good outcomes. And it's not enough because even if everybody was willing to go to therapy and take medications, we don't have enough providers to actually get those resources to people. And that's what people are experiencing now. So we've kind of taken some steps, but it doesn't end at awareness. I think that's a key point. Um, you know, there's one thing to go out and seek help. There's another thing to be able to get that as you're talking about. Uh, and again, the global pandemic has certainly shown weak links in our healthcare system and such is the demand way up. Uh, are, are, do we need more clinical psychologists? Yes. So yes, the demand is, is, extremely high. So uh, most people will be unsurprised if they've tried to find a psychologist that a lot of the time, especially in publicly funded clinics, wait times can be months long. I've seen wait times that are years long. I've seen wait times that are 
so long that people can't even put their names on wait lists anymore. Wait lists are closed to people who want to wait for services because they're so full. And you can see that even in private practices too, places where people are willing to pay out of pocket or not get things that are OHIP covered. Even a lot of those practitioners have very, very long wait times. So yeah, so the demand is certainly exceeding the supply And I think that it's not just about needing more psychologists or therapists. Like we do need more. Of course we need more. But the supply and the demand, the demand specifically is so elevated that I don't think that just increasing the supply, like increasing therapists will cut it. You know, the statistics suggest that by age 40, half of the population will have had a diagnosable mental illness. So to have everybody that has those problems receive psychotherapy, that requires a wild number of psychotherapists, probably more than we could actually ever provide. So we need to start to think about, in addition to increasing providers, having different kinds of creative ways of increasing mental wellness beyond that. So almost preventative medicine, before we get to uh, the state we all were in a global pandemic with, with a stressful situation like this, being open, talking about it, being aware. Yeah, I think that's part of it, like preventative as in, What can we teach people to keep them more resilient? For sure, I think that's part of it. I think the other parts of it are like, you know, how can we reimagine what mental health care really means? I give an example in this article of, of things that are broadly scalable to large, large groups of people, but don't take up a lot of resources or time. So they're maybe not as effective as something like psychotherapy, but they're so widely accessible that they have a big impact on a public level. So things like, you know, um, there's data that suggests that after somebody's discharged from a hospital for a psychiatric reason, a doctor sending them a quick letter or a text message just saying, hey, thinking about you, hope you're well, I'm concerned about you, you know, wishing you the best, just that little action reduces suicide attempts. Hmm. So is that as effective as a year of psychotherapy? Probably not. For the individual, but on a population yeah. level, something like that that can be given out to so many people is really significant. Just knowing there is that support, someone is listening. What, what, what happened? Why the global pandemic? Why did this bring this to the forefront? What, what was the trigger there? I think that there's a lot of things going on with that. I mean, one of the across the board, across many psychological conditions, one of the best predictors of our mental health and wellness is our social support. And I think everybody knows that we became highly isolated. Our world became really scary and uncertain. I mean, I think we still probably haven't reckoned about like what that was like for us psychologically to go through as a society and as individuals too. So people being more isolated, people being less connected to people, people being less active and out in the world, all these things are really good recipes for anxiety, for depression, and for all kinds of other problems like it. So I think the pandemic has escalated people's need for mental health care. And it also put a strain on our healthcare system so that it's harder to actually meet those needs. Uh, what about the world after COVID, dealing with this, getting back out, getting into moving forward and in, in whatever the new normal is? Yeah. Yeah, it's an interesting question, right? And like as a researcher and a psychologist, I think we're all kind of watching to see like, well, what does that look like? On the one hand, this is more anecdotal. I feel like I see a lot of people who are kind of like 
oh, that's over. I'm back to normal. You know, Mm. everything's fine now. And, and for me as a researcher and a clinician, I think the question that's in my mind is like, is that really true? Or are we going to start to see more after effects that kind of emerge slowly over time, people kind of grappling with this experience Um, or people who became very depressed during the pandemic have a harder, having a harder time shake that, shaking that off. Um, I think we don't know, and I think that we should do as much as we can now to get the word out around how people can promote their mental wellness to help people bounce back as much as they can. And to think that there's some sort of a quick solution to this. I mean, as you said, we could, we're, we're going to be studying this for years, decades to come. Yeah. yeah, I agree. I don't think that we fully understand what this means to our mental health yeah. right now, and I don't think we will for a while. Dr. Sky Fitzpatrick with us, clinical psychologist, assistant professor of psychology, York University, and the latest in the Globe and Mail. Uh, we're more aware of mental illness, but what do we do about it? Sky, thanks so much for the time and insight. Much, uh, much appreciated. Be well. Thank you for having me. Scott Thompson isn't satisfied with an answer. He'll delve into the issue until he is. You're listening to Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. We uh, talk at length, uh, it seems like every few weeks uh, or months or so, we introduce you or talk about some scam that's happening that's making the rounds. Uh, and it, it's it's bizarre. It's amazing how you have to stay ahead of this and be aware of what is going on as these become more convincing and more deceptive. Then you bring in something like AI, artificial intelligence. We've heard about how this will virtually affect every single industry. And obviously, for those that are trying to scam you, it's an opportunity as well. Let's bring in David Shipley, cybersecurity expert and CEO of Boceron Security and is with us now. David, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. I am. Thank you for the opportunity. Man, it's uh, hard just to even keep up with this stuff without AI. How does AI change this game? I mean, you know, uh, understanding or, or hearing what's supposed to be your grandkid or your niece or your nephew on the line saying that they need money. Well, now it could actually be them or well, their voice anyway. Or at least sound like them. Yeah. No. Yes. The challenge comes from a particular application of artificial intelligence known as deep fakes. It's the ability to sample even sometimes only a limited amount of audio and be able to convince, uh, create a convincing clone of, of that audio up to and including video. And, and we saw the prelude to this with some of those interesting Tom Cruise deep fakes, et cetera. So this technology is remarkably easy to use now. And of course, that has opened uh, scammers up to a wide variety of new opportunities. And some of these uh, scams have been particularly depraved. There's a story out of Arizona in January of a mother who got a call that that sounded just like her teenage daughter, and it sounded like she had been kidnapped. Uh, in a panic, she ran into a dance studio while she was waiting for her other daughter, got on the line with police only to find out that it was in fact a scam and her other daughter was safe on a ski hill um, where she was on a field trip. Um, mm. But that's just, just the tip of the iceberg. We now hear stories out of China of a up to $500,000 euro theft where a, a businessman was on a video chat with someone he believed to be uh, a friend and, and they convinced him to send some money and he's out that money now as well. Uh, can we get ahead of this, David, or is this something like the rest of them? We're constantly paying or will be playing catch up. 
We are going to play a bit of catch up because the uh, genie's out of the bottle and this technology is remarkably easy to use. Uh, so we will see uh, this type of crime ramp up. I think it's really, really critical for everyone to uh, treat every day as April Fool's now when it comes to any kind of electronic communications, um, whether it's it's text, phone calls, video chat, or more. If it's a sensitive conversation involving money, you may need to, revolt to re resort to some simple mechanisms like, um, you know, back in World War II, the old challenge response, thunder clap kind of um, passwords for conversations with people just to make sure it's actually the person you thought you were talking to. And then you wonder how long before they find out that kind of information. The, the, the thing that this, the question this raises, David, who do you trust? How do you know when it is who they say it is or isn't? How, how do you protect yourself from this? It's going to become incredibly difficult to distinguish between reality and fake, between truth and lies. It's um, it's going to be very difficult. And, and for our most vulnerable, um, which can be both seniors as well as um, social media addicted teenagers who who have way too much faith and trust in technology and seniors who who've grown up with a fabric of trust that doesn't exist anymore. It's going to cause a lot of heartache. So is this the same old uh, guidelines that we always follow, David? Just uh, be extra cautious about it, or is there something new we need to learn here? So the most important skill that we've learned in our work um, helping people detect online fraud is to use emotional intelligence. When you're presented with a, uh, a situation, the important part is to calm your brain because what criminals are really trying to do is get you overstimulated, overexcited to bypass all your normal BS detectors to get you to make a snap decision you wouldn't ordinarily make. So take a deep breath. Try to instill calmness in yourself, particularly if it's related to uh, financial matters. Just slow the entire conversation down. Speed is not your friend. It is the friend of criminals. And no matter what they say on the phone or in a video chat about not contacting police, always, always contact police. Um, they can help you. They can help you determine if this is in fact a scam, et cetera. Uh, but don't try and deal with this on your own and don't let the uh, urgency of the situation sweep you up into uh, something that could cause you harm. So in other words, David, there's there should be nothing that stops you from somehow trying to verify all of this before you act. Absolutely. Uh, it, it is now very, very important, not just to blindly trust, but to verify everything. And, and if it's coming in by a video chat and it's, and it's urgent, um, see if you can give the person a call on their regular phone number, uh, try and find other ways of validating information, um, talk to trusted advisors, don't make snap decisions. That is your, that is the biggest thing I can tell you is that, you know, that, that snap decision is the moment that, that can offer often get folks into trouble. All right, David Shipley with us, cybersecurity expert, CEO of Oceron Security, talking about internet scams. Then we add in artificial intelligence. You have to verify. You have to double check. Make sure. David, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. You too. Take care. 
All right, we remember the last uh, provincial election, and the Ontario Liberals didn't do too well. Stephen uh, Del Duca, um, and then eventually going on to become the mayor of Vaughan. And for the longest time, and there was certainly, it appears to be no hurry to elect a new leader for the Ontario Liberals or choose a new leader. And there's been um, names floated around at one time. Mike Schreiner from the Greens was even tossed about. Uh, and now Bonnie Crombie, the mayor of Mississauga, is exploring the possibility at a run for the Ontario uh, Provincial Liberals. To talk more about all of this, Colin DeMello, Queen's Park Bureau Chief, Global News, and here now. Colin, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. Good afternoon, Scott. Thanks for having me. I'm sure there's a lot in the media that would love to see this because, boy, it would be feisty. Uh, any truth to this? Is this is this going to happen? Is she is she exploring the possibility? Well, she has launched what she's calling an exploratory committee, but make no mistake about it. I mean, that's just an informal way of saying that she is running uh, because, you know, you wouldn't make that kind of an announcement very publicly if you haven't already done the homework to make sure that you have the support in order to actually mount uh, some kind of a successful or at least a competitive leadership bid. So she's running. It's just for the purposes of formalities She's launched an exploration committee, uh, but, you know, she is going to be in this race to lead the Liberal Party. Uh, obviously, the Liberals have had some trouble of late, uh, uh, not only finding a leader, but choosing direction and such. Is 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 this a good challenge for Bonnie, Crom- uh, Bonnie Crombie or is this, um, um, you know, a failing party that might drag her down? Well, you know what? She's been weighing a lot of factors as she kind of went into this. I mean, first of all, there have been a lot of liberals who have been telling her to run, encouraging her, uh, you know, based on a belief that she would be fairly competitive in the writings where it would matter, the 905, like Mississauga and Brampton specifically. Currently, the progressive conservatives have all 12 of those ridings, and that led to an even greater majority in the Ontario legislature. So there are some liberals who feel like she would be competitive because she's got star power, name recognition, and really doesn't seem to have a lot of skeletons in the closet. For her personally, Bonnie Crabbie has weighed quite a lot number of factors. Um, she she has a partner who you know didn't really seem to want her to run. She's got um, a mayoralty in Mississauga in which she's been able to grow her support over the last three elections, has run relatively unopposed and could keep that job for life if she really wanted to. And she's on the cusp of you know revolutionary change within Mississauga, it being an independent city, no longer attached to Peel region in the, in the months to come. And on top of that, she's going to be getting strong mayor powers to be able to do what she wants to do when it comes to building uh, whatever needs to be built in the, the city of Mississauga. So she's been weighing that carefully. And of course, the fact that she would have to revive a party from the dead, she'd have to raise an enormous amount of money, find the right candidates, star candidates who would be a shoe in for, uh, you know, an eventual cabinet. It's an enormous challenge here that that she'd be facing if she's selected by uh, the party. And let's not forget, she's got a leadership ahead of her. So she's she's weighed all of those and has decided, yeah, you know, despite all of that, I'm still going to jump in. Uh, does she necessarily have to do it now? I mean, she's still a relatively young person. I mean, she could even do this in the future. 
No, I think I think a lot of people see this as, you know, now or or never. I mean, she is mm-hmm. uh, 63 years of age. So by the time the next election rolls around, around she'd be 66. This is also a kind of a crucial point uh, for the Ontario Liberal Party, as you mentioned. I mean, Kathleen Wynne took the party down with it. Stephen Del Duca kept the party down at a very low seat count. Now they're looking for kind of, you know, generational change. So for her, the big challenge is actually going to be that generational generational change and and who will be driving the bus in terms of, you know, selecting the leadership, right? This is a one member, one vote kind of system. So each individual party member who signs up gets to have their say. And, and as a result, you could have a lot of young liberals joining this race who might want somebody like Nate Erskine-Smith, a 38-year-old uh, man who is uh, an outspoken liberal MP, has been a thorn in the side of Justin Trudeau, even though he has run under the same banner as Trudeau. So you've got young liberals who might prefer that option. You've got establishment liberals who might prefer Yasser Nakvi, who is – uh, you know, a long-standing member of the Liberal Party of Ontario, and was a former cabinet minister, a former attorney general, and then you might have those who see Bonnie Crombie as a bit of a savior of the Liberal Party. This is, no matter how you cut it, it's going to be a very interesting race uh, going forward. What about policy moving forward, Colin? Because obviously, as you mentioned, she's got a very high profile, a uh, good brand there, as far as we can see. But uh, you know, does she represent what they do, and vice versa? Yeah, we're already starting to see a bit of a you know policy divide within the Ontario Liberal Party. Bonnie Crombie came out on day one saying she felt that the previous iterations of the Liberal Party under Kathleen Wynne and Stephen Del Duca had moved the party too far to the left. And, and that is objectively true. They tried mm. to court a lot of the votes on the NDP side um, and and kind of ignored that that middle Bonnie Crombie says she would want to move the party back to the middle. She considers herself a centrist and even, you know, a bit center right. So she's trying to peel away votes from the progressive conservatives, from, you know, the traditional middle ground liberals while keeping whatever uh, votes they already have, um, you know, in their bank. Already, she's coming under attack for a lot of that, where some people are saying you you can't have a party that is fiscally conservative, but then at the same time is very socially progressive, because when it comes down to brass tax and funding policy measures, those two things will clash. And so you already have her taking a bit of heat over some of these policy measures, but healthcare, education, and uh, the Ford government's uh, you know, relationship with municipalities and the green belt. Those seem to be primary uh, objectives for her. It'll be fascinating if she moves or tries to move this party back towards uh, the center, because my goodness, many will look back in past years as that's that's where it was. So, and boy, it's going to be interesting if if she does move through with this and, and what direction she takes the party in. Uh, is she the front runner then at this point, Colin? Would she be? Absolutely. She's the front runner. I mean, at least she's the perceived front runner. If you talk to pollsters, they say, look, she is incredibly competitive in places like the 905, particularly in Peel region and in Brampton. And as we mentioned, you know, that was the key to the Ford government's success to winning one and uh, two elections. And so the premier certainly views her as a threat. Yesterday, the premier, you know, went on the attack, right? He, he, attacked her for staying on as the mayor of Mississauga while running uh, for the Ontario Liberal leader. There are plenty of examples of people who do this, by the way, but the premier saw it fit to target her 
And he's never mentioned or targeted any of the other Ontario Liberal leadership candidates, which goes to show you that, you know, she's got that star power and a bit of cachet that she gets under the premier's skin in enough enough to make some people believe, hey, maybe if she gets under the premier's skin now, you know, yeah. maybe people who dislike the premier might be more inclined to vote for her um, and, and a you know, different liberal party under her in 2026. It is going to be fascinating. Bonnie Crombie, uh, Bonnie Crombie, the mayor of Mississippi. Saga exploring the possibility and looks good. She's going to make a run for the Ontario Liberals. Colin DeMello with his Queen's Park Bureau Chief for Global News. Watch Global tonight for more on all of this. Uh, getting juicy, Colin. Thanks for the time. Be well. Thanks for having me, Scott. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. Doug Ford says that the fate of Stellantis and the plans for the Windsor plant are now in the hands of Ottawa. To give us an update on all of this, Marvin Ryder with us, professor at the Group School of Business at McMaster University. And here now, Marvin, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. I'm doing fine. Glad to be with you. So, um, you know, initially, and we talked about this, Marvin, it was Stellantis never mentioned the province. They said it was the feds that hadn't lived up to their end of the deal. Uh, we remember the prime minister saying, and Christy Freeland, we need the provinces, uh, the province to step up too. Uh, Ford said that they did, but we're not sure exactly what that was all about. So where are we now with this? <laughs> well, first, if you don't mind, let me take you back to 2022. And when this was first announced, the Stellantis uh, electric vehicle battery factory in Windsor is a $5 billion project. Of that $5 billion, Ontario promised $500 million. The federal government promised $500 million. Uh, uh, Stellantis was going to put in the rest. What we didn't know at the time was that agreement also had a clause that said, look, if America sweetens the deal and puts out more uh, goodies for companies looking to locate, uh, you folks are going to step up to the table. And we certainly saw that in the Volkswagen deal, where, again, very similarly, Ontario and the federal government put in the same number of capital dollars, but it was the federal government who put in the additional subsidies down the road. So when Stellantis came calling, um, what the federal government said to the province is, not this time, if, if we've got to put in additional sweeteners, you've got to come to the table. It's not the upfront money but it's these ongoing subsidies once the plant is in operation. Don't know what was being asked, and to this moment we still don't know what's happened, but apparently Doug Ford has agreed that if there is to be ongoing uh, um, money going to Stellantis, Ontario will be there at some level. Haven't heard what that is. That then allows Minister Champagne at the federal level to complete the deal, and I'm expecting to hear a revised Stellantis deal probably sometime in the next week so that plant can get back into construction. So obviously we don't know what the province has added to to sweeten the deal in any way, but it appears that now it's in the hands of the feds. Is that accurate? Right. In, in other words, the provincial government has agreed to put more into the table. Whatever that amount was seemed to make the feds happy. So they're going to take that number, add some of their own money to it, and, and apparently, again, the deal is imminent. It could be announced tomorrow, for all I know. But I would expect it to be very soon because nobody, nobody wants this plant to not be built. Everyone wants to see construction restarted just as quickly as possible. So all the forces are moving in the right direction now. It's just, it's just too bad it took this sort of public uh, strike, if you will, by Stellantis to make this all happen. But it looks like everything's back on the right track. Does this change further negotiations in the future? 
Absolutely. So as long as this uh, uh, Inflation Reduction Act in the United States stays as policy, basically built into that act are various subsidies for companies that are working towards electric vehicles or electric batteries for vehicles or what have you. Uh, Canada has let it be known on the global stage that we're not going to take a back seat to the United States and we're prepared to match them. I'm not sure we're planned that we agree to outdo them, but we are happy to try to match them. So let's just suppose uh, Mercedes-Benz wants to build a factory here in Ontario or Quebec or somewhere in Canada to make electric Mercedes, they would be coming to the government with that enhanced deal in mind and that would form future negotiations. Now, I think the good news is we've already got a deal with the big three automakers. We've now got two deals on electric battery plants. Not sure there's going to be that much more on the automotive side, but we already know, for instance, that Doug Ford has talked about a lithium processing plant. We don't exactly mine a lot of lithium here in Ontario, but the hope would be that maybe we could process raw lithium ore into something called lithium hydroxide, and that could be done here in Ontario. He's put that window out there for people. We'll see if that announcement comes in the future. Marvin Ryder with us, professor at the Group School of Business, McMaster University on the Stellantis plant and it getting back up and running. Marvin, thanks for the time as always. Be well. I will. Thank you. When there's an issue, Scott is all in on getting to the heart of it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. We know that there will not be a public inquiry. Uh, special rapporteur David Johnston said that um, can't do it. Um, too much deep, dark secrets. Uh, let's bring in Tim Powers, Chairman Summa Strategies, Managing Director, Abacus Data. And here now, Tim, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. I'm good, Scott. How are you? Uh, so far, so good. Your thoughts on all of this? I mean, at the end of the day, I think Canadians just want to know what the prime minister knew and when he knew it in regard to Chinese Communist Party interference in the last two elections. Can we not get that information without killing somebody or endangering somebody's <laughs> life or exposing some big, dark secret? Can we not at least find that out without endangering the planet in some way? You got a good Netflix script going on there, Scott. Let's uh, get big, 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 uh, great big theater at the screenwriting music, and we'll be all set. Yeah, I, I don't. Yes, I'm sure we can. But let me go back a little bit. I think th- this whole thing became about, and this is where David Johnson made a, an error, or uh, is okay to live with an error. Should there be an inquiry, or shouldn't there be an inquiry? And you know, credit to the opposition for making the debate about that. And when David Johnson decided there wouldn't be one. Um, though not ultimately his call, he makes a recommendation. The prime minister decides that uh, we are into this particular battle over uh, over David Johnson's integrity and and where this goes. The bigger concern for me, which gets to the answer of your question, is um, what what can we find out and what are we going to fix? Because those things remain, in my from my perspective, hanging right now. So, uh, and if you listen to what uh, Mr. Johnson said, there's a lot of things he said, at least in this first version, that need to be fixed. I hope that doesn't get lost in the debate over inquiry or no inquiry. 
Uh, we remember uh, what happened with uh, an MP by the name of Han Dong, who yeah. was got caught up in all of this and his lawsuit against this network and such, Global News. He said yeah. he was exonerated by David Johnston's report. Does, does this exonerate the MP? Uh, look, I've only heard the reporting of it, and I've only heard what the prime minister said, but even the prime minister, I don't think, has gone that far. You expect <laughs> Mr. Dong, uh, Mr. Dong to, to, to take that particular view, but one hopes some more work is done to, to find out. And he may very well be exonerated, but I think, again, somebody trying to uh, get a stake into this report that benefits them uh, is happening here. Mr. Dong may be vindicated, but I don't know if we're there yet. I didn't hear anything that would say that he had been exonerated. Did you? Um, I think the only thing that I thought that maybe Mr. Dong is interpreting is around some of the material. I think the former governor general saw that suggested some of the allegations were false. That's very different than saying, yeah, you're free to go. Yeah, exactly. Uh, Is this a win for Justin Trudeau? I I don't know, Um, but I do. I will say this. I think David Johnson uh, was used as a shield by Justin Trudeau. And Justin Trudeau is not heartbroken, Scott, that we're having a debate around whether David Johnson is uh, has still has the integrity that many of us have always believed he has or or he's uh, or he's protecting the liberal government. For Justin Trudeau, that's a better debate to have than uh, what's wrong with the system because that gets at um, his managerial and leadership competency, which is something that I think is more important to look at here as it relates to how secure we are or not than whether David Johnson should have called an inquiry or shouldn't have called an inquiry. At the end of the day, whether, and you know, I mean, CSIS and the National Security Advisor, they said it all went to the Prime Minister's office. The Prime Minister said he didn't get it. Katie Telford, Chief of Staff, says he sees everything. So it sounds like it's a porch pirate that has stolen these papers off his front step before the someone's opened the Prime Minister's office and grabbed them. We, you know, at the end of the day, he's driving the bus. He's the one that's got to be responsible. Is this going to, is this going to convince Canadians that everything's great? nothing to see here. I don't think it'll do that. But I think, again, as I've said to you before, what works here, and this is a strategic thing that both the prime minister and the opposition leaders need to figure out, is this is a serious issue. You and I have talked about it a lot. But is it a vote-moving issue? Excuse me. No evidence to date that it is. When the top issues get discussed among Canadians, they tend to be the ones you'd expect, right? Health care, the cost of living. Um, taxation and the like related to all of that. So <clears throat> whether this has an, any material lasting impact on the government to be determined. Uh, I agree. You know, something like Chinese Communist Party election interference isn't a tabletop issue, but trust is. And does this yes. not all circle back to trust? And this is just another lack of clarity, is it not? Uh, it's certainly being framed that way. Uh, but again, whether it sticks, because of the way um, this debate is going, it also gets a competency, which I think is important, right? You want to know that you have a, 
a competent leader of government. As you know, over the course of the last couple of days, David Johnston has uh, released his uh, report saying that there will not be, as his recommendation, not be a uh, a public inquiry into the situation around uh, alleged interference by the Chinese Communist Party into the last two elections. Um, at the end of the day, can we still get the answers to questions? Let's bring in Christian Leprec, professor at both the Royal Military College of Canada and Queen's University and a fellow at the McDonald Laurier Institute. And with us now, Christian, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. You bet. Good afternoon, Scott. So, Christian, I think all Canadians want to know is what did the Prime Minister know and when did he know it in regard to Chinese Communist Party uh, alleged election interference in the last two elections? Can we not get that information without revealing some sort of big, deep, dark secret, without endangering somebody's life, without without, uh, killing an institution? Can we get the answers to those questions without revealing a, a top secret a piece of intelligence? We can get the answer to those questions. The problem is that's not really the question that's on the table to be asked. I think what we got here is the Laurentian elites, people asking hard questions about the Laurentian elites and their relationships with China. uh, And those same elites then picked one of their own to investigate themselves. And they themselves found that there was nothing to see and nothing to investigate. And so everybody should just move on. Uh, That's, I think, what's really at stake here. This has never really been about China. This has always been about uh, a whole host of uh, of very well-placed and well-connected people who under a public inquiry would have a lot to lose because I think once we peel back the onion and we see the various relationships, including pecuniary relationships, that people, that individuals, uh, investments, firms, their law firms, their accountants and so forth all have in this, um, that would all likely come out if we had a broader inquiry on public interference. And look, David Johnston took the narrowest possible reading of his mandate. He basically looked at the newspaper reporting as well as the global news reporting, um, uh, tried to validate that apparently with internal intelligence, talked to a few people, um, and then decided that apparently there was nothing to see here. But of course, that was never really the key issue at stake. The key issue at stake here was the integrity of our democratic institutions more broadly and whether our national security system is effectively postured against the sort of interference that is being postulated here. And uh, that's the question that uh, Mr. Johnson appears to have eschewed in his report. And it seems to be a case of he said, she said. CSIS and the National Security Advisor said the information was passed along. Katie Telford says he reads everything, yet he said he didn't see it uh, for whatever reason. That being said, he is driving the bus, so he should know everything. Um, that being said, what's the relationship now like between the Prime Minister and CSIS? Uh, I think certainly I think the reaction by the government to this affair, as with previous affairs, to point the fingers at the civil service and uh, basically tell them it's all their fault uh, is not going to instill confidence in the civil service or the civil services mandate and ability to provide the best and timely advice to the prime minister. After all, this is ultimately what a civil service is supposed to do. There's no evidence here that the civil service failed in 
providing uh, timely and effective and the best possible advice available at the time uh, to the prime minister through his own department, what appears to be some coordination issues um, allegedly within his department, but more likely between his department um, and the prime minister's office and possibly the minister's office. And ultimately, that's an issue that the prime minister has to wear because this is his department. And under the Westminster parliamentary systems constitutional principle of ministerial uh, responsibility, the prime minister is ultimately responsible for what happens in his department. So simply saying, look, uh, the civil servants somehow messed up. Uh, that's the prime minister uh, evade, uh, avoiding precisely the sort of accountability that a minister is supposed to provide for the ongoings uh, within his own department under the system of government that we have. Uh, David Johnston uh, said that uh, he, he couldn't find any evidence that anybody held anything back or it didn't pass along information. Uh, is that good enough? Well, I think that confirms that the civil service provided the best advice in a timely fashion. Uh, the uh, But it raises, I think, interesting questions about, look, this is the most centralized uh, despite the premise on which this government was elected about transparency and so forth, this is the most centralized government in Canadian history in terms of the prime minister's office decision making. But the curiosity about this government is this is a prime minister's office and a prime minister that wants to control anything and everything in terms of what happens in government and the communications and messaging that goes out. But when something goes wrong... It's everybody else's fault except for the prime minister and the prime minister's <laughs> office. And I don't yeah. think you can have it both ways. And what the David Johnson's report does not resolve here is that, well, is the prime minister's office ultimately in control or has the prime minister's office lost control of its national security agencies and the ability of them to uh, inform him uh, if, uh, to provide uh, well-informed advice to him uh, that is ultimately actionable. Um, and look, as I've said before, in a democracy, it's ultimately up to the government of the day to decide what action to take and whether to act. And what we see here and the reaffirmation by David Johnston is that the government does not intend to act. And so I suppose uh, one of the battle lines uh, that the opposition will be drawing for the next election is, um, does is was it the right decision by the government of the day that nothing needs to be done and there's nothing to see here? Um, or do Canadians believe that um, something needs to be done and that it, it, uh, it behooves us to understand uh, what actually transpired here? And uh, yeah, ultimately, this is then for the listeners to decide when they go to the bile box next time. Uh, Han Dong, uh, the MP who has been sitting as an independent since having to leave the Liberal Party because of being dragged into all of this, he said with David Johnson's uh, report that he is now, uh, he feels exonerated. Um, was there something that he said that exonerated this MP? Well, what we have is David Johnston's reading of the evidence. Uh, David Johnston, as distinguished as he might be, is, of course, as is widely reported, somebody who uh, is not independent because he did not have the support of the opposition parties for his uh, inquiry. No consensus there was reached on his appointment. Uh, somebody who is close to the prime minister and somebody who is a longstanding Sinophile. Um, and so, uh, plus, if you look at the method, 
by which uh, Mr. Johnston went about his uh, inquiry, um, certainly the way he talked to a few people and then uh, looked at selective evidence to reach his conclusion would not withstand muster in my second year social science methods class. Hmm. Uh, and so we can only hope that in a more robust report in the fall, Mr. Johnston actually defends his method. But I think neither based on the surface of what is reported by Mr. Johnston nor by the uh, method can we draw straightforward inferences uh, that people have been exonerated um, uh, simply based on uh, the work that has been presented so far. Christian Leprec with us, professor at both the Royal Military College of Canada and Queen's University and fellow at the Macdonald Laurier Institute. The fallout, uh, David Johnson uh, recommending no public inquiry. Christian, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. Thank you, Scott, for the conversation. Have a great afternoon. Scott Radley is coming up after the 6 o'clock news. You can read him in your Hamilton Spectator. He is with us now. Scott, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. I am well. You're back. You, you, you've you stolen my stolen time slot. Oh. <laughs> well, you feel stolen. Free. Yes. No, no. Well, welcome back. Glad you're back. Thank you. Uh, your thoughts on the whole public inquiry uh, thing? Uh, nothing to see here. No election interference. Uh, move on. What's your take? Um, I'm, you know, uh, we've had guests on during the week talking about this. We're going to talk a little bit about, uh, a little bit about an element of this tonight, but unlike some of the guests who have said, ah, you know, I wasn't all that surprised. I was frankly shocked. I was, I was one of those who was shocked because I can't believe that David Johnston would with all the evidence that's or all the stories and the the allegations and the leaks and everything else and parliament saying 70% of the of parliament wants a hearing and the public seemingly having all these questions i can't believe david johnson would run the risk of destroying his reputation and looking like a lackey to justin trudeau for this like just call the inquiry and get out of the way. And then no one's going to say anything. You're going to say, yeah, okay, you did your job. He's not, if he calls an inquiry, he is not declaring guilt. He's simply saying there's enough here that we need to look at it. There's enough smoke that we need to find out if there's fire. I think, honestly, Scott, I think that if you are a, a staunch Died in the wool liberal supporter, what David Johnson did was great. But there's an awful lot of people around the country who aren't who had a very, very, in my mind, a very high estimation of David Johnson until this week. And that's gone. You know what? I wouldn't rule out, because his this is just a recommendation. He goes, no, nope, I, I don't recommend it. And then once the liberals see the way the tide is turning, then, because the, the prime minister can call it on his own. He doesn't need, you know, he was going to wait to see what the recommendation was. But if this turns south, I could see him still doing maybe. it. No? Maybe. Maybe. And then, then it looks, look, even David Johnson said, don't do this, but I said do it. Okay. I think we should. All I right. think he's going to play that card. Because yeah. I don't think he has any another choice in the sense that Canadians still don't have the answers that they need and they want to know when this guy knew it and 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 what he knew uh, over the last two elections and they still don't have that information you know who else and we've talked about this you and I before it's almost like it's it's groundhog day with some of these discussions with these things you know who else looks terrible in this how in the world 
and I, I know the answer ahead of time, but nonetheless, how in the world does Jugmeet Singh continue yeah. to stand yeah. up in the House of Commons and say, we yeah. will not accept anything but a, a public inquiry. It will be yeah. unacceptable. And then as soon as they say no, he goes, okay then. Like it's yeah. the most, yeah. he has become. They call an election, yeah. He has become a parody. He just, yeah. Jag, Jugmeet yeah. Singh, honestly, and I know there are NDP supporters who think he's fantastic. Jugmeet Singh has become a satire of himself. He is the boy who cried wolf. He is absolutely, absolutely, unquestionably the most useless person in government in this country because he constantly screams about stuff. And then as soon as he's put to the wall to say, okay, well then you're the guy who holds the fulcrum of power here. You are the one person who can <laughs> do something about this. He goes, yeah, I don't want to, I don't want And he knows why, because he knows that right now, this is the most power the NDP will ever hold in federal politics. Yeah. And if he calls an election, especially based on his performance, where he has looked like nothing but the guy carrying Justin Trudeau's bucket of water, he will be use, he'll be wiped out the next election. There's no reason. What's the purpose of the NDP right now? I mean, if you're voting, Scott, if you're voting in the next federal election, what is the purpose of the NDP? You vote liberal? Well, you you're upset with you're upset with the liberals. So there you go. Could you not see him becoming the next leader of the opposition if that goes? If that's the case, like people are t tired with the if they're tired of the liberals and they want to vote to the left, they're going to vote NDP. No? Possibly, possibly. I, I see no possibility that he becomes prime minister. I mean, I have a better chance of, well, no, yeah. not a better chance. I have as much chance, you have as much chance of becoming prime minister as Jugmeet Singh does. So, it, yeah, okay, if he becomes leader of the opposition, it's still way less power than he has right now. So if that's the case, if, if he's doing all this because he wants to hold on to power, don't even bother with the charade then of screaming and yelling at Justin Trudeau. Just say, you know what, whatever that, that guy wants to do who we're in cahoots with, whatever he wants, to, I'm fine with it, whatever. Because right now he's fooling nobody and he's looking like the fool who keeps screaming and then does nothing. So where do you think this goes now? Is that it? Okay, everything's nothing to see here. Move on. Uh, you may, you know, Scott, you may be right. You may be right about, let, let's wait. It's What does it take usually? A week for public opinion polls on stuff like this to start getting done and for something to get some real traction? Maybe in a week if public opinion goes really south, maybe something happens. Uh, my greater suspicion is that like everything else, Justin Trudeau skates by this because we have a disengaged public who get most of their information, unfortunately, off Twitter or TikTok. And it's not, you know, who cares? Who cares? Mm. And so he'll just skate by and it'll once again be a thing until, until the first one of his MPs or heaven forbid, he gets threatened by some outside power, then, oh no, though, you know, look at the, look at what's going on. We have to shut this whole thing down. That's when it's going to hit home. When it affects him or his party, it'll be a disaster. Until then, eh, who cares? Scott Radley coming up after the six o'clock news. You can read him in your Hamilton Spectator. Thank you, Scott. Have a great show. Glad you're back. Thanks for listening to the Hamilton Today podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from 3 to 6 on 900 CHML and online at 900CHML.com. 
And uh, the last word, we leave it to you, as always. And Gabe emails, I saw Tina Turner in the late 60s at the Town Casino, 120 people in downtown Hamilton with Ike and three dancers and a full band. Ticket cost me nine bucks. It was an amazing performance. Cheers, Gabe. 